Hey everyone, check out all the great deals on Amazon by first going to d2rpn.com and clicking the Amazon banner. By doing so, you're helping out the D2R Podcast Network. Don't forget to tell a friend and thanks for listening. Question, comment, or concern? 872-242-8311. Or maybe you'd just like to hear your voice instead of ours. 872-242-8311. Then call the D2R Podcast Network hotline at USA Chat 311. That's 872-242-8311. 872-242-8311. No matter the time or day, you can call 24-7 and operators will be standing by. 872-242-8311. Your call is important to us. 872-242-8311. So once again, USA Chat 311. 872-242-8311. 872-242-8311. 872-242-8311. To Reality Entertainment presents the Think Tank Podcast. And now, coming to you pre-recorded, deep undercover, in the world's deepest, darkest, most secure, Hadron Collider and nuclear bomb tested and approved doomsday bunker, here is Ryan the Area Man. In June of 2011, the Swedish wreck divers Peter Lindberg and Dennis Orsberg stumbled upon something no one could explain. Nearly 300 feet below the surface of the Gulf of Bothnia, the sonar suddenly showed an astonishing image. Down there in the cold, dark Nordic waters lay an anomaly, an object no one could identify. It was almost perfectly round, 180 feet in diameter, and it looked like a UFO. Now they're about to experience the adventure of a lifetime. They will embark upon an expedition in an attempt to find out what it was they saw that day. They found what can only be described as the wreckage of a spaceship. At first one wouldn't have an explanation for what this actually could be. It could be man-made. What the you don't get any answers. You just get more questions. It's an emotional roller coaster. It's my planning, and, and uh, I am a bit anxious about it. If anything happens, we're smoked. You're frapping me and my kids. My name is Peter Lindberg, and I am a professional treasure hunter. Treasure hunting for me is very much chasing the dream to find the long-lost wreck. It's a historical capsule, and no one has touched it. I'm not so much in diving on wrecks which people already have investigated. That's no fun. The fun is to find something completely new. It's thrilling, and it's extremely fun. more than 20 years of diving experience, Peter has taken part in many spectacular expeditions in the Baltic Sea. In 1997, he explored the wreck of the Jönköping, a Swedish merchant ship that sank in the First World War. 
The cargo hold contained well-preserved bottles of champagne, almost a hundred years old. It turned out to be a substantial find. The bottles were auctioned off at Christie's for the record price of £2,200 a bottle. That was in 1998. Today, the collector's price is about €21,000. Together with his friend and entrepreneur Dennis Orsberg, he started the Deep Sea Exploration Company, Ocean X Team. What drives me is uh, curiosity, and uh, I have always been a curious guy, an explorer, and I want to find out new things. To find that thing that nobody else has found is some sort of long-term goal. The territory for Dennis and Peter's expedition is centered in the Baltic Sea, high up in the north of Europe, off the coast of Sweden, and eight other bordering countries. Throughout history, many ships have been lost in these international waters. It has been said that the Baltic Sea and the Gulf of Bothnia hold more than a hundred thousand wrecks. A famous example is the Vasa, a Swedish warship that sank in the 1600s and was salvaged more than 300 years later. The hull was found to be almost completely intact. Since the inlet is narrow and the fact that rain, ice and snow are being discharged from the surrounding countries, the water is brackish, a mixture of fresh and salt water. The low salinity gives the Baltic Sea excellent conservation qualities for anything that sinks to the bottom. In the summer of 2011, the Ocean X team were on a routine expedition north of Orland. However, things didn't go as planned. We had uh, rented a old fishing vessel, which we used. And uh, we had problem already from the beginning. Uh, the boat started leaking and uh, we had to find a, a dry dock in Finland to, to repair it and, well, everything was just crazy. Disheartened by the failed expedition, Peter has an idea. On our way home, I knew that we would pass in an area where there were another wreck. So we put the equipment into the water and start searching and... Uh, well, it was less than an hour, I remember. This strange, odd thing just turned up on the monitor. My initial reaction when the circle turned up on the monitor was, hey guys, here we have a UFO. I got ghost bumps all over my body. I've never ever seen anything like that. I could say that it's not a wreck, it's something that looks very odd. Then we start measuring it and, and uh, saw that it's nearly 60 meters in diameter. It was perfect round and uh, like a mark in the, at the bottom. Remember I said to all the crew members that be quiet about this, don't say anything till we know what it is. After returning to Stockholm, the crew studies the images for weeks. But they just can't figure out what the anomaly actually is. After many days and nights spent pondering, Dennis looks in another direction for help. He wants to go public with the images. Peter said to me, okay, you do whatever you do. I called the newspaper in Sweden. That was the start of a new life. Buckle up, Star Wars nerds. You're going to like this one. Can only be described as the wreckage of a crashed spaceship. It just exploded. We kind of locked up the Pandora box. They came across something unusual. So something is it really an intergalactic The news spacecraft? spreads rapidly amongst both scientists and laymen all over the world. This whole anomaly is really intriguing, and I must say, uh, I, I, I really can't say what it is. At first, one wouldn't have an explanation for what this actually could be. It definitely requires more work. The telephone is uh, ringing all the time, radio station, TV channels. It was from the whole world. 300,000 visitors per day on the webpage. 
You're sitting with a computer and you just bing, 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 bing. I got like 50,000 mails. But it didn't have the desired effect Peter and Dennis had hoped for. There have been many theories. We have uh, sects telling us not to go there because it might be a trap. But if we touch it, it will explode and kill all the people in the world. And even that it might be a porthole down to hell. So the theories has been many and creative, but no one has came up with an explanation. Everything is just speculations. After a year of analyzing, researching and sponsor hunting, it's finally time to head out to the mysterious object. The expedition requires state-of-the-art technology, staff and mountains of supplies, which is very costly. The budget is set to 120,000 euros. Every day has a price tag of more than 20,000 euros, which means they have less than a week to succeed. Besides Peter and Dennis, the team is made up of experienced professional divers, technical operators and the ship's crew, led by Captain Thomas. I'm in charge of everything. It's my responsibility to have a safe ship and for all um, members board. The captain is the boss and uh, he, he knows what he's doing. And of course you get annoyed when he's coming down screaming at you, but of course he's right. The media have also found their way to the docks and are conducting the final interviews before Ocean X team leaves the mainland behind them. And what do you think you find? I'm very excited, but at the same time I'm quite anxious because uh, a lot of people are watching this. There's no time for screw-ups now. When it's finally time to cast off, disturbing weather reports begin to come in. There's a storm raging at sea which could delay the team for several days, jeopardizing their already tight schedule. The Ancelus is moving slowly through the great archipelago towards the open sea, allowing the storm time to pass. But in the morning, things have become even worse. The bad news troubled Captain Thomas. Dennis and Peter gather round to hear the verdict. Captain Thomas decides to wait overnight, sheltered by the surrounding islands. I am worried. Every day is all about money. It's ticking. And the clock is going. And the money is just going away. Every hour we spend here is another loss on the object. That means less chance to find out what it is. There are many ideas about what the anomaly might be. The most common theories that come from people around the world can be divided into three main categories. Extraterrestrial, man-made or natural phenomena. The idea of intelligent life forms existing somewhere in the universe is not inconceivable. Whether there have been visits from other civilizations or not is an intriguing belief. The association with a flying saucer is obvious when looking at the smooth round shapes of the anomaly. 
The following morning, weather conditions are excellent. Sunshine and soft breezes mean that the team can finally head out to the open sea and start the expedition. Everyone's in high spirits, even Captain Thomas. Calm and nice weather, everything fine as hell. The feeling is uh, quite relieved. It's a great feeling. I love this situation. Now we'll have a meeting and inform the entire crew of what will happen and uh, what we're going to do within the next 24 hours. The first challenge we have is to, to find the object again. And uh, I know that all that's always a problem. But uh, we have very sophisticated equipment now, so it shouldn't be any problem. The team scans the seabed with the help of two instruments. One is the so-called multi-beam, which creates detailed three-dimensional images of the ocean floor. The multi-beam is an advanced tool and covers relatively small areas, which later can be put together to create a bigger and detailed composite image. To search much larger areas, the team uses a side-scan sonar, known as the FISH. It creates a two-dimensional image of the seabed, a vital necessity in order to locate the object again. Due to prevailing currents and winds, the coordinates taken the year before are not 100% accurate. Peter must calculate an offset. Therefore, the search area is spread over 1.16 square miles. If they're lucky, they can find the object quickly, but it may also take several hours. The object is 60 meters in diameter, and uh, we're at open sea. And uh, even if 60 meters sounds a lot, it's like finding a needle in the haystack. Anomaly lies in international waters, and other nations' authorities around the Baltic Sea have shown an interest in the object. Therefore, the coordinates have been kept secret. Being under surveillance is not a risk worth taking. We have informed the entire crew that uh, they had to turn off all kind of tracking device in their phones. But uh, I think it's impossible to, to uh, protect ourselves from, from being tracked. Even if strict radio silence is observed on board, it looks like the Ancelus has got company. Suddenly we saw in the distance that this must be some kind of Navy ship heading directly on us. Turned out to be a Navy ship, an actual Swedish one. And it shouldn't be uh, lurking around in, in, in those waters. They just stopped and were laying there and we were going in a search pattern and they were uh, in our way. But then they went off, heading north. As the corvette disappears into the distance, the crew focus on scanning the ocean floor again, aware now that they're not alone. The search has been going on for several hours when night falls. Most of the crew have gone to bed, and Peter and Dennis take the first night shift. Night turns into day without any sign of the object. When suddenly... We have lost uh, our side scan sonar. And uh, it's only the drum standing on, on the off deck. And the rest is on the bottom right now. In situations like this, Peter needs to make a critical decision. And he has to make it fast. To lose the side scan sonar means that it will take a much longer time to, to search the area because with the multi-beam we don't have the width so we will lose a lot of time 
time is money. Peter faces three alternatives. Either they keep searching using only the multi-beam, or they head back to Stockholm to get a new side-scan sonar. Both of these alternatives will cost time and money. The third alternative is to try and retrieve the sonar in order to resume the search as quickly as possible. The chances to find it on the bottom are very, very small. And uh, we don't know either if it's still working or not. If we take the wrong decision, we might uh, lose the entire project. Finally, Peter decides on the third alternative. The Ancelus arrives at the position where the equipment is believed to be lost. The fish is too small for the multi-beam to locate, so they have to use a remote-operated underwater vehicle also known as an ROV. We have a 200 meter cable on the side scan sonar, so we, so we hope it will be on a, like a line on the bottom. The ROV has a small grabber arm that Floris, the operator, hopes to use to reel in the fish. First, they have to find the cable, and time is ticking away. Finding the cable is one thing. Grabbing the cable with the ROV is another thing because the bottom is very, very soft and the visibility is gone directly as soon as the ROV getting close to the bottom. So even if we find the cable, it might be gone in a second. Luck is on their side and the cable is found almost immediately. Now they have to focus on grabbing the cable in zero visibility. Floris relies on his gut instinct and pure skill to succeed. Floris is quite a young guy, so I guess he's playing some computer games, but he's uh, natural when it comes to driving an ROV. I mean, he's a pilot from the beginning as well, so I think he has it in his veins. Yeah, it turned out good. <laughs> Took about 15 minutes to find it, so uh, went quite fast. They're still facing two critical issues. Can the fish be fixed? And if so, how long will it take? I was a little worried, not so little, quite much. But now we have found it. It has been a long night, it will be a long day uh, before we can continue, so uh, we have to start work. After hours of repairing, the crew finally managed to mend the fish. But this entire side operation has cost them nearly six hours. Inevitably, this lowers the onboard morale. Well, we have been uh, searching now for uh, 18 hours, but we had a break for six hours when we had the side scan fish on the bottom. But... Uh, we have been working for 12 hours, effectively. And uh, we saw a shadow uh, a few moments ago, so we will go back and have a look again. So uh, maybe we'll find it in a couple of minutes. But day turns into night again, and still no trace of the anomaly. The whole team is resting except for the divers Stefan and first mate Kai, who are working the night shift. Kai is steering the boat and Stefan is carefully tracking the monitors. Of course we're getting frustrated when we can't have the uh, exactly spot where the object is. Did 
this is actually very interesting. Uh, and I think we found it. This uh, is uh, exactly what we're looking for. Uh, this is obviously a different angle from what we've seen before. Yes. So mark this spot. After more than 48 hours of searching, they have finally found the object. Peter, uh, the same uh, size as the object we have seen last year, and it's round. The, the mood is much better now than before. I mean, we had prob problems with a lot of things, but now we're on 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 the run again. Now they must proceed with extreme caution, since they don't know what lies beneath them. Uh, it's something hard down there, that's for sure. Some kind of gas well, can it be an oil well, can it be a meteorite? If 95% uh, of our, our fans were right that there is an alien spacecraft down there, of course that would be gold, if it's not lethal then. I I'm very confused to tell the truth. I think we can dismiss a lot of theories as soon as we have the first glimpse of the object. But before even considering diving for the object, they have to get a clear picture of the environment below the surface and calculate the risks. They put the ROV to work. I just put a uh, normal diving gauge on the uh, ROV to be able to measure the, the temperature and the depth uh, of all the operation of the ROV. That is very good for us to know when we are planning our dives in the future. Nothing is left to chance. Besides the temperature and depth, the ROV will examine the currents surrounding the object and retrieve material from the bottom that can be analyzed. I mean, this can be dangerous. We have no clue what it can be down there. Chemicals or mechanical things, poison of some kind. We have to know if there's any risk down there before we send down the divers. Going strong. The anomaly rests at 90 meters, that's 300 feet below the surface. At these depths, the visibility can be very restricted, especially when soft bottom sediments are stirred up by the ROV. Therefore, the team uses its sonar system to get the first close-up images of the object. Down in the depths, the ROV also manages to capture a clear and distinct close-up image of the object's surface. Too early to say now, but it's something for sure. It is. It looks like a man-made. The man-made theory is also very common amongst the Ocean X team's followers. Some people refer back to the mythical underwater city of Atlantis. Others think it's a megalith, a sort of submerged Stonehenge. There are other findings around the world that are difficult to explain, like the Yonaguni, for instance, outside Japan, an enormous underwater structure that looks man-made. 
Other theories concern modern man-made structures, like the Russian warship Novgorod, built in the late 1800s, or even the mysterious Nazi flying saucer Hanebu. Some people think that it might be the concrete foundation of a lighthouse, but they are normally situated in shallower waters. Others think of giant cable drums, except that the biggest known drums barely reach half the size of the Baltic anomaly. The ROV is coming back up, so the team can calculate the diving risk. Since they still don't know what the object is, all possible precautionary action is being taken. It's okay. With sufficient information about the underwater environment and no lethal radiation readings, the team begin planning and preparing for the first dive. I'm not going to dive on this expedition myself. My job is to supervise the operation. It's my planning and, and uh, in the end, if something happens to them, it's, it's my neck. Now we're, we're not really know what we're facing. So, of course, it's, uh, I am a bit anxious about it. The dive, which will be about two hours in duration, takes place in the cold Baltic waters, which normally are around six or seven degrees Celsius. But all of a sudden, the readings show that the temperature right on top of the object has drastically dropped below zero. Just recently discovered that it's uh, minus one uh, degree Celsius, which is actually uh, below the freezing point. And that's uh, actually very surprising. When diving, one must always work with at least one other person so that they can assist each other in case of something goes wrong. Stefan will be diving with his partner, Frederick, who has planned the whole operation. Uh, he is meticulous in his planning. I mean, he's the person who knows that the devil is in the details. He plans and plans and think over the plans and then he does a replan. I would say without Frederick, I wouldn't uh, be able to do these dives. Deep sea diving is incredibly risky and puts great demands on the human body and equipment. Already at 20 meters depth, a diver is at risk from nitrogen narcosis. The symptoms are similar to being under the influence of alcohol, with impaired judgment and poor concentration. At 60 meters, the high pressure makes the oxygen content in normal air poisonous, which can be fatal. To remedy this, the diver breathes a mixture that lowers the oxygen and nitrogen levels with the help of helium. The deeper and longer the diver is down, the slower the ascent, which means having to pause several times on the way up. Otherwise, the nitrogen expands, creating bubbles in the blood system. This gives the diver decompression sickness, also known as the bends. If you, by any chance, uh, would get decompression sickness, uh, there is a way to, to rescue yourself from it anyway, and that's to go to a recompression chamber. Uh, but here we are way out in the Baltic Sea, and we have no recompression chamber. So if anything happens, we're smoked. While they are down, there will be a third diver up top. His function is to be a rescue diver. Well, I will be assisting uh, the divers. If, if there's any problems with the diving, uh, they will send up a buoy, and we will see where they are, and we will go there, and I will go down to assist them uh, if there's any trouble. They're getting close to the descent, but the Ancelus is engulfed by fog, which reduces the divers' safety levels considerably. I will not want to take us out. Party pooper, but we see no buoy here. I'm going to shoot it now. Peter has to make the most difficult decision of his life. Because of their tight schedule, they don't have time to wait for the fog to disperse. So either they abort the entire mission, or they continue under dangerous conditions. 
With the fog, we have two alternatives. One is that we wait for the fog to disappear, but we don't know how long that will take. Two is that we dive anyway, but if the divers run into problem, then we are in deep shit. But we have taken the decision that they will dive anyway. When you descend in the Baltic Sea, uh, in the first couple of meters, uh, there is daylight. And uh, the deeper you go, uh, the darker it gets. So at 20 meters of depth, there is almost no light at all. At 40, 50 meters, it's pitch black. And at 90 meters, it's like a black hole. It's just nothing. During the descent, the fog has become even thicker. Peter has second thoughts about his decision to let them dive. During a dive to 90 meters under these conditions and something happens to the divers, they are beyond all kind of rescue. They can't go directly to the surface because if they do, they die. And on top of this, we don't know what we will find down there. When the divers finally reach 90 meters, they tie a lifeline to the anchor so that they can find their way back to the ascent line. Now, Stefan and Friedrich have only 10 minutes left before they must begin their demanding ascent. We had the sonar pictures in our mind. And uh, a thing to remember uh, uh, is that when you see a sonar picture, that's actually 60 meters in diameter. And when we got down uh, in pitch black water, you only see sort of one meter ahead of you. So when we uh, see the anomaly underwater, it's nothing like the sonar picture. We have no clue what it is. Of course, the question starts to grow in your mind. When we swam over it, uh, it looked like uh, concrete or cement. And uh, when we touched it, it turned black. What I've seen that it looks somewhere like this is uh, when you have burned plastic or anything that's burned or melted and that was very mysterious for us the 10 minutes that stefan and frederick had left on the object are already up and the slow but dangerous ascent begins the longer we stay down there, the longer it will take to get back to the surface. 10 minutes uh, at 90 meters of depth, it would take uh, around 90 minutes to get back to the surface. You're anxious and you're nervous standing up there, not knowing if it has worked well for them or not just waiting for an emergency boy popping up somewhere and then you have a really stressful situation trying to save the divers. to the surface and you stand on the boat's deck everything just releases in you all the adrenaline that kept you alive that kept you in work uh, just 
disappears. And uh, of course, I might look a little sad, uh, and that's just uh, because I've been so tensed for for two hours. Alltså super, jag har aldrig varit med någon liknande kall i, i, i temperatur. Det är så jävla kallt. Du gick fram till objektet. Alltså vi, vi är ju på objektet. Alltså när vi dyker. Gick du på kanterna också? Ja. Kanterna? Var det som jag hade ritat? Ja, ungefär. Ja. På... Är det, rak, är det rakt det? Alltså det här är kanten. Ja. Det ligger i alltså, är det liksom som saker som går ut så här. Som att det kanterna är liksom som att de är gjuta ut så här. Kan det vara magma som har kommit ut och kyts ner och havet och... Ja, och här ligger helt plötsligt så här stenformationer. Ser du? Så här, stenar som ligger som i en ring. Allvarligt, som en häxring alltså. Ja. De bara ligger jätteformade så här, som att, som att någon har lagt upp dem så här. The most peculiar thing or the strangest thing was, was, was a hole. It was like a circle, two or three meters in, in, in width, and, uh, and like a frame around it. I mean, like a square frame and a circular hole. And that's, that's kind of weird. It's a magic moment in my head. I'm waiting for this for a long time to see these pictures. Yeah, my heart is ticking quite fast. You see what you believe is a rock, and when you look closer, it is more similar to concrete. It's like symmetric to be asked. Yeah, and it's like somebody molded it before it actually turned into stone. The, the amazing thing here is that you don't get any answers. You just get more questions. Uh, I don't have a lot of ideas of what it can be. Uh, I try to take photos, documentation, collect samples, and I let the scientists uh, come up with the ideas of what it can be. So I don't really have a clue. It's just too big of a question mark for me. That was probably the most important dive I've ever done in my life. And I've done maybe 6,000 dives in my life. I would die for an expert to tell me what I've seen. After a dive like this, Stefan and Frederick have to spend about 12 hours on the surface before it's safe to go back down again. Therefore, they've run out of time. So early next morning, the crew weighs anchor and the ship heads back to dry land again. We didn't get so many dives as we wanted to. And another big problem is that the multi-beam data, which creates the 3D image of the bottom, is incomplete. We have spent a lot of money on it and uh, it was very important for this expedition. But the positive thing is that we have brought some samples up, so I hope it will be enough for some experts to, to give us some answers. It's a strange stone, it's black. There can be a natural reason for that. It looks like it burned. But why? I don't know. The last of the three most common theories is that the anomaly is a natural phenomenon either a structure caused perhaps by a gas pocket or a volcano throwing up lava which consequently created the mystical anomaly and there are also several theories claiming the anomaly to be a meteorite meteors are sighted every now and then and there are many well-known craters around the world could this explain the weird shapes and black stones that is the anomaly The time has finally come to get some answers. Peter and Dennis start off with a meeting with Andreas Olson, an expert in underwater archaeology. To me, it, lo it looks like uh, I wouldn't perhaps call it a wall or, or uh, that it's something you can walk in, but um, it's definitely a very sharp edge, and it in. Uh, I haven't seen this before, and, and when I just 
look at it now, it definitely looks like man-made. Very interesting. It's looked man-made in my eyes, but he's, uh, he's the knowing guy. Scientist. And when he says things like that, I'm just... If it is man-made, it must be carved out from the cliff itself, because... Uh, all you see there is, is a hard surface, it's a mineral or something. <laughs> My immediate reaction was that this is some kind of concrete construction, something modern. I would think uh, 20th century or perhaps late 19th century. But it definitely, from, if, from the imagery, it looks like it could be man-made. To me it looks like the... Um, when you look at that sharp line, it, that it has a, a, a very different density. Yeah. It, and it almost looks like it's like steel or something, because yeah. it's a much harder echo. Don't you agree? Yeah, I do. You have to deal with very many different kinds of experts to, to get a full picture. Yeah, for sure. That's the next step. So the regular shape means the object could be man-made. But if that's the case, where do the burnt-looking stones come from? Could it perhaps be explained by volcanism in the Baltic Basin? Marine geologist Martin Jacobson at Stockholm University might have the answer. That would certainly be extremely interesting because that would mean we have volcanisms at a time where we, I wouldn't expect it at all. It is a very exciting result purely scientifically that I would be interested in to even go further and look into. If the burnt stones are not from the Baltic Basin, were they heated somewhere else? like, for example, the outer atmosphere, meaning that the anomaly would be a huge meteorite resting in the depths. We have very nice examples of, of meteorite impacts in Sweden, but um, it would probably be a bigger imprint in the bedrock geology around, and we would have seen that in maps and anomalies before. So it, it doesn't point to that to me. Peter and Dennis need more answers. They meet the geologist Volker Brukert, who has more than 30 years of experience with rocks. He has examined the material and is ready to give his opinion on how the rocks were created. All right, so, so if you look at the side that I sort of uh, smacked clean, you see it has, has very fine crystals that, that indicate that, fine crystals often indicate that we had a, a molten rock and the molten rock chilled very rapidly and therefore the crystals didn't have time to grow. And therefore, that's how we identify a volcanic rock. So, I don't know why you find a volcanic rock in the middle of the northern Baltic. My best interpretation is that glaciers have transported it there. So, it's official. The rock is volcanic which might have been transported there by glaciers. But how can the anomaly's weird shapes be explained? Peter and Dennis show Falker the video material, hoping it would reveal more clues. Could the shapes be explained by something lying beneath the volcanic rock surface? It looks like a crust. Yeah. It looks like a thick crust. Yeah. We have this black material yeah. shining through the cracks. What do you mean? Oh, but that could just be the mud that's sort of... No, this is not mud. Oh, okay, so this is okay, so this is solid surface here. One would have to see whether the material that's really underneath is the same as the one that's on top. What I really would need to look at this more closely is a sample directly from your object. The surfaces can be deceiving and don't really say what the interior of the rock looks like. So the big questions right now are, did the glaciers transport it there and... What lies beneath? Well, from my point of view, it could almost be Millennium Falcon right now. I think it's important to have more information before we can, we can pursue any theory. I have to be very open. We have in Sweden, for example, everything has been 
overridden by the eyes and can look very, very machine-made or don't really look realistic. But you can never say anything with 100% certainty. Uh, geologists tend to explain this uh, as part of a geologic phenomenon and uh, perhaps uh, biologists would explain it according to his or her discipline. So we must have many disciplines, we must see this from many point of views. We must create, uh, so to say, a holistic picture of this in order to find what it is actually. Keeping an open mind, could it in fact be some sort of alien vessel resting beneath the stone crust? Klaus Swan, a renowned journalist and chairman of UFO Sweden, gives his opinion. Our oceans are not explored at all, really. I mean, it's a space in itself. So there are, of course, um, surprises. There could be things, of course, that maybe visited us for hundreds and thousands of years are still left down there. That would be quite easy to see. I mean, it would be quite easy to to drill your way down and see if there is anything metallic underneath the stone. Today is only speculation, but it triggers our imagination and we must try to find the solution, of course. So there's only one thing left to do. Peter and Dennis have to head out to sea again in order to get the final answers. To be able to find out what's inside the object, we have to do a core drilling, and uh, that's a huge operation. So we're talking millions of euros. When Peter and Dennis began to prepare for another expedition, what wasn't supposed to happen, happened. Rumors and speculation begin to surface, saying the object is nothing but a pile of rocks. Yeah, I get pissed off. I mean, wake up this morning and see this shit from Fox News. And they're writing about that we have found a rock and the information comes from Sweden. People think they're right now. That's the sad thing. It's harder for us now to convince companies to get into this. When Fox do this, it's pissing me off, yeah. Several months pass and these rumors harden into a global belief. But Dennis refuses to give up his search for the truth. We have not been uh, any luck with the sponsors. We have not found any sponsors. We must find other things to get money into the project. Team Jacket. In an act of desperation, Dennis begins selling off branded merchandise in order to scrape together enough money for a new expedition. There have been a long time with lots of struggling. There's a kind of frustration in me. To work with this, you must have patience. It's all about patience here. Their attempts to finance the project begin to provoke some people who think Peter and Dennis are trying to make money out of nothing. Even some of the fans who were once enthusiastic have lost faith in them. Peter and Dennis have become a laughing stock. Quickly, Peter, put on your dive suit. I don't have a dive suit. We're broke, remember? The Baltic Sea Anomaly. The search for the anomaly continues. Yada, 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 whatever. Peter is disheartened and distances himself further and further away from the project. Dennis, on the other hand, keeps on fighting, but now it's to clear their names. Uh, we are no hoax. We are uh, treasure hunters. Why should, should we lie about this? Even Dennis has to draw the line when he, and above all, his family, begin to receive intimidating messages. You notice the dark night, Mr. Osberg. The dark death. Your health. It's good that you don't die in the winter times. So many accidents happen then. Say hello to your little kids. They are so sweet. Perhaps I meet them in the kindergarten. What have I done to deserve this? He's fretting me and my kids. 
Dennis's struggle is also inspiring. Every now and then they still receive well wishes and kind support from fans who find Peter's and Dennis' work important. As mistress, I'm not scientific. They're also, in the same time, not trustable to the society. It would be really sad if we actually have something there at the bottom. Think about if that were abandoned, just because we have some norms in society that says there are no miracles, there are no such things. I think that would be a scandal almost if we don't go there and look at what it is actually. One of their enthusiastic followers has spent a couple of months trying to restore the corrupted data from the multi-beam. After much hard work, he's been able to put together new, unique images that reveal the object and a large part of the surrounding area. As a last-ditch effort, Peter and Dennis, together with Stefan the Diver, come together to see if they can shed some light upon the mystery. This is going to be uh, uh, very interesting for me to see a bigger view, to take a step back, actually two steps back, and see the whole picture. What we will see is very interesting because we have just seen it as a 2D size scan sonar image. But now we will have a flyby through the area and it's quite amazing. The multi-beam interpretation shows something absolutely astonishing. 1,500 meters south of the object, there's a small underwater mountain divided by a canyon. Leading off of this underwater feature is a ridge that runs all the way up to the object. <laughs> the 3D image also shows another ridge heading towards a second anomaly. When studying the side scan image, the resemblance to the first anomaly is striking, which could mean that they are in some way connected. Well, we have two uh, curved-shaped endings of it. And if we take the disturbances away, we will have a straight line, at least on this side, the two arches. Makes it looks like maybe not natural. This second anomaly might be the most interesting. It actually looks like something has hit the mountain, but I don't think it is like that. I think it is a coincidence, but I don't know. Maybe I've worked with this too long now. Maybe I'm crazy. But in my eyes, I see a crash site. Perhaps I will never find out, and I have to live with that. But one thing is for sure, I will never stop thinking about it. I'm divided in two about an answer. It might be a very boring answer, and maybe I can live without that. Or the answer will surprise me, and in that case, I'm looking forward to it.
please subscribe to the Detour Podcast Network on iTunes, and don't forget to rate and review while you're there. You can also download the Stitcher and Podbean app to your device for free and search Detour Podcast Network and subscribe. If you enjoy listening to the shows on the Detour Podcast Network, then spread the word to everyone you know. Your word of mouth is our best advertising method, and we appreciate your support. Thanks for listening. Question, comment, or concern? 872-242-8311. Or maybe you'd just like to hear your voice instead of ours. 872-242-8311. Then call the D2R Podcast Network hotline at USA Chat 311. That's 872-242-8311. 872-242-8311. No matter the time or day, you can call 24-7 and operators will be standing by. 872-242-8311. Your call is important to us. 872-242-8311. So once again, USA Chat 311. 872-242-8311. 872-242-8311. 872-242-8311. Check out all the great deals on Amazon by first going to d2rpn.com and clicking the Amazon banner. By doing so, you're helping out the D2R Podcast Network. Don't forget to tell a friend, and thanks for listening.